how is the tenant doing? Because keep in mind, you're not just buying a piece of real estate, right? You're buying a piece of real estate that has a lease with a tenant and their success is your success. So I think that's really, really important you know, to look into. Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Gentle Art of Crushing It podcast. My name is Randy Smith and I'm your host today. And this edition is solely focused around passive investing for the new or newer passive investors. So excited to have uh, Dan Lukowicz with us here today. He is the Senior Director of Encore Real Estate Investment Services based out of, I believe, Detroit, Michigan. And a quote that he shared with me is that he is going to share with us everything they could ever want to know about net leases. So Dan, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here because this is a whole different asset class I've not jumped into at all. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Randy. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it very much. Awesome. Awesome. Well, why don't we jump right into it, Dan? Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you went from wherever you were to where you are today and what you're doing today? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Dan Lukowitz, as you mentioned, uh, Senior Director here at Encore Real Estate Investment Services. We're a boutique net lease investment sales firm. I'm sure we'll get a lot more uh, in-depth into what net lease is um, in, in just a few minutes. Um, 39 years old. I live here locally in uh, in Metro Detroit. Um, you know, I really got my start in the real estate back in 2005 when I formed a company with some friends called Disability Made Easy, which was a barrier-free home modification company. Um, I was in charge of the sales and marketing. I'm a big, you know, people person, outgoing, and and you know, love to sell. Um, but that really uh, first introduced me to the concept of taking something that was maybe functionally obsolete renovating it and making it suit its purpose. Um, and in doing so, you know, helping to better the lives of others with terminal illness or disability, um, you know, in the renovation of their homes. So, you know, over the years, I got involved um, in single family house flipping, uh, just by purchasing my first home, I, you know, I had the opportunity to buy something. This was back during the last recession, but um, I had the opportunity to buy something that was move-in ready, you know, 100% ready to go. Um, and just before signing the contract, I found another property that was bank-owned, completely outdated and, you know, just needed every single surface to be redone. Um, and I purchased that home and uh, worked with some contractors hand in hand to renovate everything. And I just saw, again, that concept of taking something that has potential and turning it into something that's, that's you know, more purposeful. And, uh, you know, at the end of that renovation, I went and bought another house and another house and another house. And probably at this point, I've done 75 or 80, uh, you know, house flips uh, over the years, um, which was fun especially when I was younger and had more energy. Um, sure. But, you know, over time, I, I actually, you know, I, I, I always, uh, as I was doing this, I was, I was working at the time at, at Amazon as a business development executive. Um, and eventually I, I left Amazon and I, I went full time into house flipping. Um, and, uh, you know, through my, my time doing that, um, I got introduced to commercial real estate brokerage. I'd always been interested in, in brokerage, but to me, residential just didn't make sense. It, it didn't make sense to do all that work for such a little payoff. When I heard about net lease brokerage and how I could broker these properties, um, you know, and do everything from the comfort of my home or office, not have to manage, you know, to do what I would call adult daycare of managing contractors and, and sure. assist people with passive income, 
it really is something that got me excited. And I, I, I jumped in with both feet and I really enjoyed it. I built a team here um, and, and have been very happy, um, you know, assisting investors in, in the purchase and sale of uh, NetLease properties all across the country. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. Then you, you covered a lot of ground there. And I love the kind of the avatar that I focus on is a salesperson moved over into the real estate space because that, yep. that is me as well. And it seems like those skills translate very well into this space as they have for you and many, many others. Are you interested in real estate investing, but don't know where to get started or think you don't have the time or money? Are you stuck in your W-2 because the golden handcuffs make it hard to walk away? If this sounds like you, check out impactequity.net and schedule some time to talk with the founder, Randy Smith. Randy went from massive income to leaving his W-2 through passive income, and he can help you do the same. www.impactequity.net. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the the net lease space. I know of it, but I don't know a lot of it. And this show focuses a lot on LP investing, where people are cutting twenty five, fifty, hundred thousand dollar checks. So this is a little bit different world than that. Can you kind of walk us through your world a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll describe what net lease is by by making a, a like a contradistinction and telling you what net lease isn't. So a lot of people are familiar with multifamily, right? So with a multifamily property, you're going to have your gross collected rents, right? That's going to be your income. We'll keep it as a simple example. But you're also going to have expenses, right? You're going to have property management. You're going to have vacancy. You're going to have, uh, you know, to plow the, the, the parking lot and cut the grass and, you know, repaint the property and replace the roof every now and then. So, you know, you're, and you're going to have eviction costs. So you're going to have your income and your expenses. And in many cases, you know, the expenses might uh, are, are very significant. So let's say you had a, a multi-tenant property, a small one, um, and it was just collecting uh, $125,000 of rent per year. Small property, maybe it's a five or 10 unit property in a tertiary market. Um, you know, your expenses could be $60,000, $70,000. Your NOI might be half of your gross collected rents. So let's kind of juxtapose that to a Wendy's property, uh, a net lease property. So first of all, before I do that, I have to explain that in the net lease world, we have many different types of net lease. But for our purposes here in this example, we're going to talk about something that's called an absolute triple net lease. In a few minutes, we can go into the other types of net leases. But this is kind of your gold standard, your most common, and your most highly desired. So the Wendy's property is an example of, a, of a, an absolute triple net lease. And the reason it's called that, Randy, is in the Wendy's lease, it says that Wendy's has to pay $125,000 of rent, just like the multifamily property. However, that rent is net to the investor. So the property taxes are actually paid by Wendy's or, or the tenant that's operating the Wendy's. The, the, the insurance is paid by the tenant. The uh, maintenance, repair, roof, structure, parking lot, you know, snow plowing, grass cutting, management, everything is paid by the tenant. So as the landlord, this is truly the most passive, actual tangible real estate ownership investment that one can have. It's literally a coupon clipper. You sit in whatever state you're in away from your property, if that's the case, and collect that rent. Now, there are other types of net leases, like a double net lease, which is, again, the tenant pays the taxes, the insurance, but they don't pay for things like the roof and structure. That's a double net lease. But again, for our purposes with this triple net lease, your $125,000 of income, that's your gross income, and that's also your net operating income. There are zero expenses. Now, in addition, the leases in almost all cases will have built-in rental escalations. Those could be anywhere from 1.5% annually, 
five percent uh, every. I'm sorry, ten percent every five years. Uh, you know, seven and a half percent every five years. Things like that. So that helps to hedge against inflation, which is really nice. And and these leases are also guaranteed not by you know Mr. Smith or Mr. Lukowitz who are living in the apartment complex, right? But they're guaranteed by major corporations that in many cases have hundreds, if not thousands, of locations. So if there's a problem with that particular operation and they have to vacate, they're still on the hook because they're guaranteeing the lease by the whole corporation, all hundred or or thousands of units that are involved. Awesome. And so what are the lease terms, length, details? I'm sure it it sounds to me like those tenants and the lease is probably the most important aspect of this because once you have the lease in place, then you, you feel fairly confident everything's going to run smoothly throughout the duration of the whole, correct? Yeah. So there's a lot of components that are important to underwrite and analyze. You know, you're going to want to look at the demographics. You're going to want to look at the the traffic counts, you know, in the area and in front of the property. You're going to want to look at population growth. Is it growing? Is it declining? Um, you know, what are the major national retailers that are in the area? So those are all important. And then, like you said, Randy, the lease is very important because the lease terms dictate everything for the property. So typically in response to your question, it really depends on the tenant. A lot of tenants sign 15 or 20 year leases. Those are very common, you know, especially 20 year leases in the quick service restaurant, the fast food industry. Um, In the dollar store space, typically your major national dollar store tenants will sign 10 year leases. Uh, Mm -hmm. Starbucks, for example, rarely if ever will sign anything other than a 10 year lease. Um, so, you know, at, at minimum, you're usually looking at 10 years, more typically 15, and even more typical than that would be a 20-year lease duration. Interesting. So, um, now, things change. Businesses change direction. If, say, a Starbucks were to come in, because I had one just down the street from me that that ended up closing doors and building a, a facility down the road, do, do they end up paying out the duration of the lease, or is that a negotiation at that point? What does that look like? So what it looks like is they're on the hook. They're absolutely on the hook. The only way off the hook would be if they were to to declare bankruptcy for the whole corporation, which, again, is why these assets are so secure and so stable. Now, Mm -hmm. often they will attempt to negotiate a buyout because if you or I, Randy, own that property, yeah, it's nice. We've got, you know, rent being collected and theoretically Starbucks is on the hook to, you know, do some forms of maintenance for the property. Um, Starbucks always signs double net leases, so they're not responsible for roof and structure. Um, But in this situation, we may, you know, it might be in our best interest, right? If we can find a replacement tenant and Starbucks is willing to pay us, let's just make up a number, 60 cents on the dollar for every dollar they owe for the rest of the lease. Maybe it does make sense to take that buyout now and then put in another tenant. On the other hand, if we don't find a good tenant or we don't like the offers we're receiving, then we would just want to, you know, elect to keep Starbucks there and keep them paying rent. Interesting. I, but I would imagine, though, if you've got an empty, if you've got an empty lot, and you've got somebody on each side of it, um, it from a from a marketing standpoint, it probably doesn't make sense to have that sitting empty, or it could hurt your other tenants as well. Is that it? Does, does that so factor if into it? it? It's funny. I was thinking that as you know, just as you asked the question, if it's a single tenant standalone Starbucks, I'm less concerned, right? Because I just own sure. Starbucks, and I'm not being affected by anything else in the market. If it's a shopping center, yes, I would agree with you. I would be more likely to take a deal on a vacant multi-tenant site where you know my tenant has vacated one of the site the the bays in the shopping center than I would on a single tenant standalone for exactly the reason that you mentioned. 
Got it. Okay. All right. So this is this is getting more exciting. I've had friends and I know of people that have done the dollar store route. I've heard people on podcasts talking about that. And that's always been somewhat intriguing to me. Can we walk through like an example of what it would look like as a passive investor, what it might look like to try to pursue something like this? How would you how would you educate or kind of handhold me through that process? to get started in this space. So and are we talking in an example where, for example, you're the buyer who's buying a passive net lease investment? Yeah, let's say I wanna buy a dollar store, Dan. Let's let's have that conversation. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect, so the first thing that I would do, Randy, is I'd wanna understand what you're looking for, right? So you've already, you've already narrowed it down tremendously because you've told me dollar store, right? Yeah. So once you tell me dollar store, I wanna know, okay, do you have a cap rate range that you're looking for? Or maybe you don't know. Do you have a lease term duration that you're looking for, right? Um, are you how tertiary of a market are you looking for, right? Because dollar stores are notorious for being in tertiary markets. Yeah. Um, you know, so those are all going to be factors. Budget. You know, what what price range are you looking for? Um, with dollar stores, you know, in if you want to include the band of dollar stores that are very short term, you might be able to get into the dollar store space for around six to seven hundred thousand dollars. That's going to be a very short-term, very tertiary, older building. I'm just letting you know. Yep. If you're talking about, you know, the the, the quintessential uh, ten-year, you know, tri- you know, deal that is just built by a developer, breaking ground, you know, they're opening, you know, in, in in four weeks. You know, that's going to be something that's going to be somewhere probably between 1.2 and 2.2 million dollars. Pretty narrow band for what we do. So I'd mm-hmm. want to kind of hone in on on what you're you're looking for first. And as a broker, I think that's very important. My job, and and this is hard, right? My job is not to sell you at this point. My job is to get to know you and to get to know your needs and what you're looking for, and then to find the property that fits. Okay. So in in the first example you share, you're saying six to seven hundred grand. I'm assuming that these are done on traditional commercial loans. That uh, they probably take a look at the leasing structure is one of the biggest factors of the underwriting process and maybe the quality or integrity of the business that's going in there. Um, What type of loan to value do you see on these types of of mortgages? What is that? Sure. So, you know, it's going to vary based on the asset and also based on the borrower. Right. But, you know, assuming that we have a very well qualified borrower, you know, you're financing and I'd like to keep it. We can. You know, diverge from this, but you know, I'd like to keep it at at, at a deal like let's say that has like ten years left on the lease, not the six or seven hundred thousand dollar one year left on the lease dollar store. Because I'll tell you Got why. It. If we look at that deal, any lender is going to put the term. I don't want to say any lender. Almost all lenders are going to set the term of the loan based on how much time is left on on the lease with the tenant, because they're yeah. going to assume that that tenant is leaving. They always want to assume worst case scenario. So in that deal, you're going to have a very short-term loan, and it's going to be kind of like a, a unique loan. It's not going to be the typical lender's bread and butter. But if you have an eight to ten-year deal, what you're going to look at today is you're going to have um, typically between sixty-five and seventy-five percent LTV. While qualified borrowers can still get seventy to seventy-five percent LTV, and then you're going to have um, typically on a deal like that. What's interesting, Randy, is because rates have gone up, lenders have gotten creative. And a deal like this two years ago might have been a 20-year amortization. The problem is, is that if this Dollar General is a six and a half cap and you're borrowing at six, seven, five, you're going to have mm-hmm. negative leverage, right? So one of the things the lenders have done to make that more palatable is they've actually adjusted the amortizations. 
So they're offering now a 25-year amortization on the same deal that two years ago, they only would have offered a 20-year amortization, which for everyone listening will essentially lower your monthly payments and allow you to, to have better cash flow. So that, that's important to recognize. Um, today, for a product like this, and you hit the nail right on the head, if you're dealing with a Starbucks or a CVS or a Dollar General, good, good solid credit, you're going to get a, you know, better loan terms. Today, for a product like that, where we're sitting, we're looking at roughly between six and a half and maybe 6.8% um, you know, pricing right now for your loan. So to approximately 25% down payment, 25-year amortization for a product like this, and you're looking at somewhere let's call it right around, you know, six and three quarters for, for, uh, for your, your mortgage rate. And are these usually 10 year term, seven year term? Do they do a good, any a good interest majority, only stuff? So yes, interest only is available. A good portion of them are five year terms. There are seven hmm. and 10, but I would say five is the most common. And it's really going to depend on your structure. I've got a deal right now I'm working on. Um, that is a, con- a retrofit a conversion of a fast food restaurant to a Starbucks actually. And hmm. there's like two periods during the loan. The first period is the purchase. And then 24 months later, when Starbucks is done with their build out, there's another 800 grand that has to be drawn for the borrower because the borrower is going to reimburse Starbucks for some of their exterior modifications. So right. in, in that loan, because Starbucks isn't going to be paying rent for the first 24 months while their shovels are in the ground, the lender is giving an interest only loan during that period. And in fact, because it's Starbucks, they're even willing to tack on, you know, whatever the interest is onto the loan. So the borrower doesn't have to come out of pocket with it. So, so we're seeing okay. a lot of creativity on behalf of lenders today. Interesting. Okay. All right. So this is, I mean, this is not a space that's too far off. Um, it could be available to some of the folks that are listening on this call. So when you are dealing with a, a new investor that's coming to the table, they've got X amount of dollars on the table, what are you looking for as a minimum of somebody that you're willing to work with? Like how much capital do they need to have at play? Is it a certain profile? Is it a, what's, what's your avatar for entry yeah, level? Yeah, great question. Yeah. yeah. So first of all, for this scenario, I'll get into the avatar as well, but for this scenario, I think before we even get into how much money and what they're looking for, the number one thing I need is transparency. If you're not ready to do a deal, that's totally fine. I'm happy to talk provide value, show you deals, but it's good to know where you are so that I can, you know, set my expectations properly. Um, in terms of, of investments, if someone's going to, you know, buy a property themselves, you know, and, and own it in their LLC, let's say, typically, you know, there's some property available for six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000, but the market really opens up once you get past a million bucks, million and a quarter, it's even bigger, million and a half, even bigger. So, okay. you know, typically, like we said, you're going to need 25% uh, down, so, you know, we're, we're looking at somebody that's got at least, let's call it two hundred to $250,000 of capital that they can that they can put down, right? I'd want to know if you've been in touch with the lender, you need me to make an introduction. If you haven't been in touch with the lender, I want you to call my lender ASAP to make sure that you're qualified. I would like to see proof of funds and, and, and uh, you know, a PFS if you have it, because a lot of sellers would like to see that if I'm presenting an offer to them. So what's um, a PFS? Oh, sorry, a personal financial statement. That's going to show me what your uh, assets are, your liabilities are, your total net worth, and even a schedule of real estate would be helpful. And and I'm not saying I won't work with somebody if they don't have this. I'm just saying that if I'm submitting an offer and I can also send that personal financial statement, as well as your track record, showing them what you own, um, you know, as well as your proof of funds, that's just going to be a stronger offer. I see it every day. When I list a property and I get 10 offers and two or three of them have, have that information with them, 
the sellers always take it more seriously. So in regards to the actual avatar, I primarily am a listing agent. I happen to, to sell to a lot of buyers because they come and buy my listings, but I typically work more with, with individuals who are selling commercial property. That's what I would say is my avatar. Not to say I won't work with buyers. I do it all the time. Um, but in general, I'm more of a, a focused on, on listings. Um, so, you know, that's all going to be important. And then it's going to be important to get to know you and know what you want. You know, I found that if somebody's all over the board, it's very hard. And I have to show them properties from many different asset classes within the net lease space to narrow things down. And that, that for them is almost like an educational experience. I've done it a lot of times. And every time the person just learns more and learns more. And finally, they say, you know what, Dan? Cell phone store. You know what, Dan? Dollar store. You know what, Dan? Sure. Medical office. So, you know, that's part of the process too. And that's exciting, especially when I'm working with, with you know, new investors. Awesome. And now is the, from the, the lending standpoint, I've heard that quite often you need to have net worth equal to the amount of the loan. Is that true in this space as well? Or, you know, I haven't had any of my lenders say that specifically that's, and maybe they are looking at that and I'm just not aware. Sure. Um, but you know, here's the thing, like, especially if you're dealing with a long-term lease from a credit tenant, you know, especially if there's a delta between the interest rate and the cap rate, a positive delta, that is, um, you know, this is not an asset that's adding uh, liability, so to speak, in terms of uh, debt, like your debt service coverage ratio is such that you're cash flowing more than, you know, you're paying out in your in your your debt payment. So yep. the, the lenders like to see that you have liquidity to cover the down payment um, and they like to see reserves. But they're, I think they're focused more on their internal metrics like that debt service coverage ratio, which is gotcha. essentially a ratio between, you know, how much it costs you to service your loan by paying your monthly payments relative to how much you're collecting in income. So those metrics, I think, are, are most important to lender. And, and what kind of DSCR do, you, do they like to see in this space? Is it a... 125? Is it 150, 200? What is that usually? It depends really on the asset, the more risky the asset, the, you know, the, the more coverage that they're looking for. But typically we see things anywhere between one and a quarter to one and a half, like you had mentioned. Got it. So it, at a DSCR of, a, of uh, one and a quarter, and if this is true, uh, I guess the term you used is absolute triple net lease, like yep. truly there's no additional expenses in addition to the mortgage to right. the to the owner. Right, exactly. Interesting. Well, that's yeah. um, that gets pretty exciting. Then. Very good. Okay, it's exciting for the investor and the lender, right? Because you don't have surprises. I don't have to say, "Oh man, snow plowing this year was so expensive. Gasoline went up. You know, salt sure. went up. Oh my, my occupancy went from ninety four percent to eighty seven percent. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, the cost of lumber is through the roof, or uh, the roofing contractors went. You know, their their price per square foot went up three dollars. Like. We just don't right. have to deal with that. So that's very comforting to, to the, comforting to the investor and to the lender. Got it. Okay. And I know in the, um, in the multifamily space, which is where I spend probably 70% of my time, um, insurance and taxes are like two of the very largest expenses that we have in our P&L. Um, in an in a absolute triple net, those just simply aren't part of the P&L at all, right? Correct. The, the tenants... Now, in most cases, the tenants actually pay directly, yep. sometimes depending on the lease. And this is why you need a good broker to look at the lease. Sometimes the actual landlord pays and then is reimbursed. I prefer the straight direct flow. Now, what I will tell you is that the issue that you're bringing up of, of, of increases in taxes and insurance, it definitely applies in the multi-tenant tenant space. So like yep. I've got two shopping centers right now under contract. One of them, the taxes 
were, I believe, it was a long-time ownership. The taxes, I believe, I could pull it up, but I believe they were uh, about $31,000, and now they're jumping up to $55,000, right? So significant increase. Um, insurance was at 5500 bucks. We got a quote for about 7500 but then we were able to shop around and get something closer to 5500 But yes, very important when you're underwriting multi-tenant retail property, shopping center properties, where you are going to be responsible to pay taxes and insurance, the tenants in many cases, Randy, will reimburse you because the leases are called tri are, are triple net in, in nature. However, in some cases, they're capped or they're just a flat and a flat per square foot rate annually that goes up, you know, a certain percentage every year. But if there's a massive increase, you have to check your leases because some in some cases you have to absorb that. And now your now your cap rate is going to change, right? Because those numbers are going to change when you purchase. In other cases, you're allowed to pass that through to the tenant, so you won't feel it. But that's important to look into. Okay. Yeah. Very good. This is yeah. This is a very interesting conversation, and it's uh, it's an alternative for the like the the professional passive investor that likes to diversify and have you know twenty, thirty, forty LP positions. It could start to make sense to start looking at this space for at least a portion of the dollars and the portion of the capital that they have in place. So um, do you see generally that there is a, a, a natural progression of people like yourself? You did single family, then you moved into larger, more operations driven, and now you're a broker and you do this type of stuff. Is there a general trend that you see people moving before they graduate to this this type of investment? Um, you know, it all depends in, in terms of, are you talking about in graduating to brokerage or graduating to net lease investments? Net lease investments. Yes, definitely. Oh, definitely. I mean, I see a lot of people, I had a client, um, that, you know, he did exactly like me, tons of single family flipping. And then it was just like, I'm going to shopping centers, forget this. And then yeah. he did shopping centers and he said, I'm going to net lease, forget this. And like, yeah. you know, I recently had a conversation with him about a shopping center I was selling and he's like, Dan, forget about it. If there's any landlord responsibilities, I am not <laughs> buying it. Because, you know, the wealthier people get, the more they realize they don't, they don't want to work for their money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I, I, I mean that in a smart way. Like, I would do the same thing. Like, that's why I think that's the appeal of these properties. And a lot of people don't necessarily start. Like, I couldn't have started at a triple net property. You know, the first property I bought was my own home. It cost me $81,000. The second right. one, I think, was, you know, five or $10,000 purchase. I didn't have a million or a million and a half dollars or even the, even the down payment for that, right? right? So I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people who aren't born into a family that invests in net lease, they come from other directions until they get into net lease. Awesome. Well, let, let's do this for a little bit. Obviously, there has been a lot of changes in the retail uh, market. Um, people are, are very afraid to get in the retail market because of this move to you know, offshoring, onshoring. Uh, Amazon, all of those types of things. What are you seeing in the market today? And where do you see the trends in the future in this particular space? Yeah, great question. I mean, retail is alive and well in my world. Um, we just, you know, just some data just came out in the last few days that retail uh, vacancy is at a historic low. In fact, it, 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 this is the lowest that, that uh, the vacancy rates have been in retail in 18 years. We're looking at a vacancy wow. rate right now across the country of 4.8% which is pretty incredible. Um, you know, consumer spending reports came in. Consumers are spending in a very, a very strong way. I mean, there's concerns, obviously. You know, there, we also have more credit card debt than we've ever had before. But 
if you look at, you know, retail locations, you know, you look at uh, major fast food chains, many of them are announcing that they've had you know, record years in terms mm -hmm. of sales. Um, I mean, I look at concepts like car washes. I mean, there's there's a, a kind of an overdevelopment of car washes going on right now. But, you know, some of these car wash sites, Randy, are doing six to nine million dollars in annual sales. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Right. You know, and you've got fast food restaurants, you know, Chick-fil-A that's doing, you know, five, six million a year or, you know, Lululemon, the average Lululemon store, I think is is is, is around you know six million dollars in in in, uh, in in sales per year. They have, I mean, their their sales per square foot is like out of this world. So I see a lot of health in the retail sector. Um, you know, for better or worse, as a consumeristic society, we have an affinity to spend money and buy things. And you know, those uh, places that provide those things, whether it's a hamburger or it's a pair of you know a uh, hundred dollar leggings, those places do well. And I think that that right. is that is the the market that we're in. Um, and I think that, you know, retail is a strong industry that people should, should, uh, you know, take, take a, a strong look at. Awesome. And are there any kind of watch outs or certain specific areas where people should try to avoid if they're going to start looking in this space? I say like, I, I can't give you a generalization, but I can tell you that, you know, every deal you look at, if, uh, you should always request store sales in many leases, they require the tenant when requested or annually to provide unit level sales. So if I'm looking at Wendy's properties, I want to look at, and not all of them in there, and not every lease Randy calls for store sale reporting, but as a purchaser, I want one that does, and I want to analyze it. I want a Wendy's that's doing two and a half million dollars worth of sales, not a Wendy's that's doing $1.2 million worth of sales, right? Because that Wendy's okay. is going to stay there. That Wendy's not going to cause me any problems. That Wendy's is going to want to renew their lease. So I would just say that it's important to underwrite and analyze how is the tenant doing? Because keep in mind, you're not just buying a piece of real estate, right? You're buying a piece of real estate that has a lease with a tenant, and their success is your success. So I think that's really, really important you know, to look into. I would also urge people, if you're analyzing shopping centers, if you're considering shopping centers, the analysis and underwriting is much more complex and less straightforward than uh, the single tenant absolute triple net deal with no expenses, as you pointed out. Right. Yep. So make sure you analyze and underwrite properly. Make sure you review the leases or have your broker help you review the leases to ensure that when the taxes go up, you know how much they're going to go up to and you know whether or not you're responsible for them and your underwriting reflects that. So I think that that's definitely something that's very important um, to look into. And then I would say, like, especially today more than ever, guarantor size and strength. Right. Not every Wendy's is the same. I could show you a Wendy's deal that looks exactly the same as, you know, one just down the road. One of them has an operator that has 11 units. So the lease is guaranteed by those 11 units in that operation. And the yeah. other one is guaranteed by uh, Meritage, which has, I think, 346 locations, right? Sure. You want the lease that's guaranteed by the largest entity possible. You want the lowest likelihood of default that is humanly possible. Very important. I love it. I love it. And I guess one, one final question then, when, when leases do expire, because all leases expire, who's responsible for finding new tenants at that point? What does that process look like? Yeah, good question. So first of all, on that topic, something that people don't realize is, you know, typically a lease expires, but you have options, right? So you might have four or five year options. So let's say it's a 20 year lease, at the end of the 20 years, the tenant has four or five year options. Now, options are only a benefit to the tenant. 
The landlord has zero say whether or not the tenant will exercise that option. The tenant has the full right to walk away. The reason that the tenant wants those options is they want to be able to continue their operation if they deem it to be feasible and profitable, you know, and not have to leave, right? So let's just say that either they don't exercise their option, they leave at the end of the lease term, or they're done with their four or five-year option periods, and now they leave. That building is yours. You now have no tenant. You now have to pay the taxes and the insurance and the maintenance. So, you know, it's your responsibility to lease up that property. And that's going to require, unless you have some solid relationship, that's going to require you to pay a leasing commission to a leasing broker. Got it. Okay. So there are leasing brokers that that's all they do is they, they do. work they work with these large national chains or local chains, whatever that is, to try to find find homes for those those businesses. Okay. And vice Perfect. versa. So what you just described, Randy, would be a tenant rep, landlord broker. Okay. There's also a landlord rep. So I'm sorry, that was a tenant rep leasing broker. There's also a landlord rep leasing broker. So okay. when someone's looking for the Starbucks to fill up their, you know, vacant property, they're going to be looking for, a, you know, a, a, they're they're looking to work with a, a, a landlord rep. But Starbucks has their own broker, not not a Starbucks employee, but their own broker, and that's their tenant rep. Got it. Okay. Okay. And I guess one final question, because we're all here to make money, right? Um, you mentioned the gap between the interest rate and what the cap rate is, and that's that's going to dictate the essentially the profitability this is to the owner. Can you walk us through what that calculation looks like on maybe an example million dollar, two million dollar property in today's term? If somebody were buying a two million dollar Starbucks property, like what type of returns could they expect to get? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, first of all, things have changed a lot in the last 20, 18 months, as sure. you know, sure. right? And, and you know, the deals that made sense to finance two years ago don't make sense to finance anymore because, for example, a uh, 575 Starbucks deal, you'd have negative, le negative leverage borrowing at six and a half or six and three quarters. So that's a cash deal now. Um, so, you know, a lot of the market now has turned to cash. Um, I guess for our for the purposes of our of our example, I'm actually just going to pull out a spreadsheet. And, I, and anybody who reaches out to me, by the way, I'm happy to share this this uh, this spreadsheet. This is a really good tool that we use um, to underwrite deals and essentially to to uh, um, answer the exact question that you asked. So okay. essentially, what this is is it's an amortization table, and what we do is we plug in um, things like the loan constant. We plug in things like the down payment. Um, the cap rate, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just going to um, go ahead here and assume this is for a shopping center. So this okay. shopping center uh, was $5.8 million was the, the offer price we were putting in. And the cap rate was an 8% cap because this had $466,208 in net operating income. This okay. particular individual wanted to put 25% down and get a 75% loan to value. Uh, we underwrote this about a month ago, uh, six and a half percent loan to uh, six and a half percent interest rate, and the lender was willing to do a twenty-five year amortization. So, okay. at the end of the day, the most important number that the the investor is looking at is the cash on cash return. Yep. So, the cash on cash return here was actually seven point eight five percent. So, had okay. he bought this property for cash, he would have gotten eight percent return. He's leveraging because whatever reason he doesn't want to tie up that cash doesn't have that cash and his cash on cash return is a seven eight five so okay. what really helped this was the amortization for example 
if this would have been a 20 year amortization, I just plugged in the number 20 instead of 25 in my spreadsheet, the cash on cash would drop all the way from to, to 5.43%. And that's because um, if you look at it, this property uh, with a 20 year amortization has a 32,000 and change uh, payment per month. When you change it to a 25 year amortization, the payment goes down to $29,000. Wow. Um, obviously your net operating income from the center is constant. So, you know, that's, what's nice about these spreadsheets is you can play around with them and see what makes most sense. You know, where do you hit that sweet spot of the highest loan to value or sorry, of the highest cash on cash return. If we could, for example, change this to a 30 year amortization. Now my, my payment goes down to $27,000 a month and my cash on cash goes up to 9.34%. Awesome. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, I I'm intrigued. Uh, I you know I, I think you you've shared some amazing information. And what you said earlier, you can share everything we could ever want to know about it. Um, I don't know what I don't know about this space, but you certainly answered all of my questions. So Great. yeah, thank you so much for kind of getting into all those details. And now I'm gonna have to talk to you probably privately to to learn more about opportunities you have and what that could look like. So anytime. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Dan. Yeah, my so, pleasure. Well, let's do this. Um, I do have a few questions that I like to ask folks um, on every podcast. So let's run through a few of those and uh, we'll give you an opportunity, of course, to share anything else that you want to share with the audience as well. So, but why don't we start there? Is there anything else that you care to share with the audience that we haven't covered today? I mean, just, just to encourage them to reach out to professionals like yourself and myself for uh, guidance and advice. That's why we're here. That's what we do for a living. You know, our job is to ensure that you make as much money as possible. So, you know, leverage that. I would just say, uh, you know, additionally is if there's anything I can do to help or add value, if you just want a set of eyes on a deal, even if it's not my deal, even if it's, you know, something else, I'm happy to to talk and to you know provide value in any way that I can. So I just encourage people to, you know, please reach out. It always is a pleasant experience when somebody reaches out from a podcast like this. And whether we're able to do a deal or not, it just, uh, it's always great to make a connection like that. Outstanding. Outstanding. So for folks that are trying to learn more about this space, are there particular books or podcasts or um, avenues that you would suggest to folks trying to learn more in this space? Yeah. So it's it's funny because there's not a lot of um, resources when it comes to books about net, net lease. Um, but there is one book. It's written by a friend of mine. It's a great guy. I mean, this guy, it's interesting. He's He's a 100% buyer rep. He doesn't do any listings. So he's like the opposite of me. Okay. But um, I love him. His name is is Alan Fruitman. It's okay. called the Triple Net Property Book, or like the NNN, and then it says Triple yeah. Net Property Book. Yeah, um, it's short. It's all about 1031 exchange. It does touch on you know net lease in general. Um, I like it. I read it when I when I first got in the industry, and I've I've loved you know interacting with Alan. Um, you know, I if you honestly if you Google my name, I've I've been on probably at this point. It's closer to 300 podcasts. Wow. So, you know, tons of great information there about net lease. Um, you know, I know that, that uh, you know, Randy, you've got a big following. I know, congratulations, by the way, you guys just hit another major milestone. I, I think I just saw that you had your biggest revenue month, like the month before. Uh, and now you're doing it again. So, you know. It keeps doing great, it month after month. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Great, great guys like Randy. Um, and then, you know, I like LinkedIn. I think there's a lot of great knowledge on LinkedIn. Um, a lot of people producing great content. There's great dialogue and, and, you know, mind share, um, with a lot of thought leaders. So I think that that's a great, a great way to go. Um, I wish I could say there's more, uh, out there. I mean, I'm in the mm -hmm. process actually of, 
of working on a book uh, about NetLease because of this dearth of information. So sure. hopefully we'll have that out soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would just say like, reach out to the people that are the thought leaders in the space and pick their brains and they're, they're, they're great, uh, you know, great resources. Awesome. Awesome. All right. And then finally, a couple of fun ones here. Is there a recent bucket list item that you checked off your list or one you're hoping to in the near future? That's a great question. So I had a bucket list of doing a, um, a net lease development deal. Um, okay. I haven't completed it, but I'm in the middle of it and it's going really well. I'll tell you, it's a, it's an education and a half, even for me. Um, I'm, sure. I'm loving it. I'm really loving it. So that's, that, that's definitely um, a bucket list uh, item that I'm, I'm the, the check is starting. Haven't finished okay. it, but, but we're Very checking good. it off. So I'm excited about that. Awesome. And then the final one here, if you had a hundred grand sitting in your bank account that wasn't allocated to something else, what would you do with it today? That's such a great question. I'd probably do one of two things depending on what else was going on in my life because one of them is more passive than the other. The first would be I would find a deal that was, let's say, around a 7% return uh, in, a, in a stable of an asset as I could. And I would partner with other people to put together like a little bit of a, maybe call it a syndication, call it a, you know, a JV um, yeah. to invest that money in a stable, secure deal yielding around 7%. Um, the other thing, if I was, you know, wanting to be more active, and this is probably what I would do, is right. I would take that hundred grand and invest it in, you know, a retail redevelopment. I'd find a vacant property um, and, you know, work with a local leasing broker to, to find a tenant. And then I would, again, you know, you probably raise, you know, partner with a couple friends and, mm -hmm. and, and a lender and uh, do a deal like that, a retail repositioning deal. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate all the information you shared today. You brought a ton of value to the audience, something that's new for this audience, at least through this channel. So thank you so much for, for being on the show today, Dan. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I encourage everybody to reach out. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn, Dan Lukowitz, L-E-W-K-O-W-I-C-Z. Um, if it's all right with you, Randy, I'm happy to give out my phone number. Absolutely. Um, yeah. My cell phone, you can call me directly. It's 248-943-2838. Again, 248-943-2838. And I mean that wholeheartedly. If there's anything I can do to provide value, please reach out. It'd be my pleasure to make a connection. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Well, folks, thank you again, Dan. And to the audience, as always, we want to thank you for joining us again today. Uh, we always encourage you to continue that education journey. But more important than that, make the decision to take action and take one step more moving towards that first passive investment or the next passive investment. Um, join us again next Thursday for another great episode. And thank you again for joining us today. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.